Rand Fishkin, someone who really doesn't need an intro for this audience, but I'll provide one anyway, founder and CEO of SparkToro, which is a leading audience research platform that leans into social engagement data. And I'll let him explain a little bit more about what that means, uh, as well as Moz, the original SEO platform, um, and obviously a celebrated leader in the marketing community. So excited to have you here today, man. A momentous occasion for both me and the podcast. How are you doing? Thrilled to be here, Adam. Glad that I could be part of this. We've got a pretty solid discussion here today. We're going to be talking about B2B tech go-to-market strategy, what's changed since your time at Moz and everything that you're doing at SparkToro, and the current and future state of B2B tech website experiences in general. But I think uh, a good place to start is high level. Let's go through a little bit of a positioning exercise for, for SparkToro. What is it? Who is it for? And why should they care? Yeah. So as you mentioned, SparkToro does, does audience research. So essentially, that means that if you are curious about which podcasts are popular with interior designers in Los Angeles, or you want to know what websites to advertise on in order to reach chemical engineers in the UK, or which hashtags visual designers interested in the UI field are using on Twitter, like SparkToro can tell you all those kinds of things. It's a relatively simple product. It essentially just crawls and aggregates hundreds of millions of profiles, tries to connect up those profiles to be like, oh, here's Adam on LinkedIn. Here's Adam on Twitter. Here's Adam on Facebook. Here's Adam's YouTube. Here's his Reddit. And then amalgamates all the data from those different sources. We're not using your name. We're going to throw away all the personally identifiable information, but we're going to say that you know, podcast hosts or or SEOs or marketers, right, which might include your profile or bio across these various sites, have these attributes and behaviors in these percentages. So it's anonymized, it's aggregated, and it's also super useful. We're about, I think it's around 40% agencies and consultants, and then another, say, 25%, 30% uh, in-house marketers at brands ranging from you know, big companies all the way down to small startups, and then a variety of other users representing, you know, 5% of our user base. So like folks in government and politics, fields like nonprofit, education, some creators and influencers, uh, podcast hosts, YouTube creators, all that kind of stuff as well. And I want to dive into audience research, just that category in general, but uh, just like really quickly, what, what is it that sets SparkToro apart from the other players in the space? I don't think anybody else does audience research. <laughs> I'm messing with you. Um, so I, first off, I suspect the like the best by all measures audience research tool out there is probably the one from Brandwatch, uh, mm -hmm. but it's also like $100,000 a year to start. SparkToro is free forever, or if you want more data, you can pay us 50 bucks a month, or if you want even more, there's a $150 a month plan. But we're like, you know, one one hundredth the price of something like Brandwatch. SparkToro plays in that small business. We we want to make this data accessible to everyone. We think it's frankly total BS that Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and Instagram and Reddit and YouTube and Google get all this data about you and then use it to advertise against you. You're the ones who built this data, right? Creators, podcasters, marketers. Uh, people who own websites and social media accounts, they built all this data that attracted audiences to these platforms. And then the platforms were like, ha ha, fooled you. I'm taking it away. Go suck <laughs> a lemon. 
Twitter used to have this great analytics thing where you could see like demographic profiles of your audience and hashtags that they use and people, other people they follow. Facebook would show you the same thing before the Cambridge Analytica scandal. And then they they just took it and they were like, haha, suckers. It's sort of like Google's Trojan horsing of the web in SEO with mm -hmm. uh, keyword not provided, if you remember mm -hmm. that one, right? Totally. Like, oh no, we'll, we'll never take keyword not provided above 10%. Two years later, it's 99%. Ugh. Sparto democratizing social data, finally. Hell yeah, that should be, that, that should just be, I should put that on the homepage, just Spark Toro democratizing data, social data, finally. I am curious about the keyword phrase audience research. I took a look back at Spark Toro on the Wayback Machine when you guys were just kind of ramping up and you started with audience intelligence. And I don't, I'm not sure if there was, there was another shift in there. I think it was like market research and audience intelligence until you landed on audience research. Were you playing around with category creation? Was that experimentation? Yep. Let the market decide. Curious about that. Exactly that. Exactly. So, you know, when we launched, we did not, I think that, you know, the best thing you can do as B2B software is describe your product the way your happiest customers describe your product. When you launch, you have no happy customers or customers at all. And so we didn't have anyone to sort of mine for that. Hey, what, what do you call SparkToro? When you tell other people about what SparkToro does, what do you say it does? Uh, and so we started with audience intelligence, which was sort of a, yeah, a little bit of a, a an unentered category. There weren't a lot of, I, I couldn't find another software provider that specifically said, oh, what we do is audience intelligence. There was market intelligence. And we were like, well, we're kind of adjacent to that. We don't tell you about the whole market. We just tell you about the groups of people who are online. So we're audience intelligence. Uh, and then... Over time, we were like, oh, market research does not work. Everyone who has an association with the phrase market research assumes it refers to large-scale surveys. And that's not what we do, right? There's gotcha. no, we're, we're collecting passively uh, posted data, public data from profiles across the web. Audience research was when we dug in, I think it was end of 2021, mm -hmm. we sort of did an exercise where we like talked to a bunch of customers, asked them how they described SparkToro, did a, ran a survey, did interviews, et cetera, et cetera, which by the way, those are like the two core other processes of audience research, right? So if you, if you one, two, three, what audience research is, it's surveys, interviews, passively collected data at scale, right? And we're, SparkToro is the third one, but we did one and two for ourselves to come to audience research. Gotcha. Gotcha. Thanks for taking me through that. Things have changed a little bit since your time at Moz. Go to market oh, really? strategy. No. I, I, yeah. Are you sure? <laughs> there's, been, there's been a couple of paradigm shifts that have happened in between, you know, okay. um, but I, I, I'm curious about the motions that you're using, um, you know, founder led, employee led, what you and Amanda are doing. It's pretty incredible as far as like the, the content that you're creating, but uh, you know, you have this community that, that, that you have nurtured over the past 10, 15 years. Well, almost 20 years now. Um, <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm curious what's changed with uh, SparkToro and what's working, right? So you have PLG, obviously, and there's a, there's marketing led, uh, if, if we want to consider that. Are you finding that the community is kind of the play here and uh, the other motions are kind of catching up or is PLG the play? Uh, just kind of curious what you're saying. I would say we're kind of 50-50. First off, I, I don't totally love acronyms just because a lot of people don't know what they mean. For example, product-led growth, which, which I think some people think refers to, oh, the product is just really good and therefore people pass it around and it's shared. Or is product-led growth a, hey, we use the product itself to generate 
new leads by doing referral systems or shared network types of things, right? Slack, you have to invite your team for it to be valuable. And then once you start inviting your team, you invite people from outside your team. And when they leave, they go to other companies that they want to get on Slack and yada, 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 mm -hmm. right? And then you can build private communities. Or is product-led growth more like... Um, People sometimes point to Uber as like, oh, it's a product that just everybody talks about. Like, oh, you're still taking taxi cabs? I tried this new thing, Uber. I think SparkToro plays in both of those worlds a little bit. So for example, many of our customers are on accounts where they invite other team members and then they all collectively use it. SparkToro is also really popular with agencies and consultants who then screenshot it, use it in their reports and are like, hey, client, we used SparkToro to get this data. And of course, marketing teams who have people come onto their team, they use SparkToro there, and then we see them again at next company, next company, next company, right? So the product sort of sticks with them. And then the other side is what I think I would call creative content plus brand marketing. I have occasionally called it influence marketing as opposed to influencer marketing. That phrase means something so specific that it's really hard to get people to think, sources of influence rather than influencer. Right. Amanda and I do a lot of guest appearances of, of all kinds, right? Like we'll go on someone's YouTube channel, we'll be on a podcast, we'll speak at a conference and a, a webinar, we'll do a live stream with somebody back when this was a thing, right? We do like a Twitter space or whatever, hang out. I, and we do a lot of social media marketing, like just being present in all these platforms, which is now getting a little bit exhausting because there's so damn many of them. <laughs> um, now it's like, well, a bunch of us are on LinkedIn, but some of us on threads, blue sky, mastodon, blah, blah, blah. The combination of that is very effective, right? It gets our brand and knowledge of what our company does and the things that we believe in and the topics we're excited about and research we've done, content we've produced, right? It, it does create a community around that. What I'll say though, is it's a harder marketing flywheel to scale than SEO was 15 years ago. And that's, you know, that comparison is unfair because I think SEO is a harder flywheel to scale today. Mm -hmm. Like if you want, if you want to try and start ranking for keywords today and you have no brand, you know, brand Fuck. new website, man, the difficulty level is insane compared to what it was when I started Moz or um, even say 2015. I don't think we're inventing this system, but we're leveraging uh, this in a way that very few other brands, especially brands of our size do. Thanks for taking me through that. I'd like to explore the lessons that you learned from your time at Moz and, and just like how you think about going to market has shifted as you're building SparkToro. So SparkToro is, uh, we're five years in, right? I think it was 2018 or 2019. Right talking, before yep. the pandemic, this has been an interesting journey for you. <laughs> Bo both are PLG, MarTech solutions, sorry, product-led growth MarTech solutions with different purposes. How has go-to-market strategy changed at SparkToro or how has it differed within the first five years? I would say half the change is led by my own desires to try something different, um, use, use a different approach. Uh, do something that's very SparkToro centric. So the way that we do marketing, where we essentially find publications, people, sources of influence that reach our audience, and then try and do things that will get us in front of those publications and sources of influence. That's what SparkToro is all about, right? SparkToro mm -hmm. is essentially like, I want to reach 
you know, whatever the interior designer is in California. And so I'm going to, you know, be present in these old school magazines and publications and websites, and whatever. And that's what SparkToro itself does, right? That's what Amanda and I do. Then the other half of it is the world has changed. And so we have to evolve. For example, at Moz, there were millions of people every month, at least, you know, by the time I left, millions of people every month were searching Google for topics around SEO. They wanted to learn more about, I don't know, rel canonical or, you know, language targeting or how to do the best cured research, whatever it was. Mm-hmm. At SparkToro, there are very few people, I would say it's maybe dozens a month, who search for anything related to audience research. So it is, in a way, it's, it's not category creation, it's almost practice creation. We must create the practice of marketing through your audience's sources of influence. We have to popularize that. We have to reach people where they already are and seed in their mind like this idea of, hey, there's another way to reach your customers, a type of marketing that very few people engage in formally and professionally. You should try it. It's frustrating, Adam. I think my biggest frustration around the whole, you know, this doing this kind of marketing is that for a brief time, it was quite popular and it had a name. It was influencer marketing. It was called that from about 2012 to 2015. And then the Instagram influencer thing and YouTube influencers blew up so big that influencer marketing no longer meant find your audience's sources of influence and go reach them through those. It just meant go pay half naked dude on a beach to pose with your product for 500 bucks and he'll post it to his Instagram, right? Like. Yeah. Uh, we're, we're planning on doing that for our next campaign. I guess we'll take that off the list. Um, no, I'm just kidding. I need that to lose like five pounds before we do this. So <laughs> <laughs> there's like zero uh, Instagram search volume for shirtless 44-year-old Jewish tech entrepreneur. Like that just does not, <laughs> <laughs> it's not. Yeah, that, that's what I don't category trace is all about. <laughs> we'll, we'll get that going for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. It is an interesting shift. And, and I think that just kind of the evolution from the idea behind Moz and what it did and the, the idea behind SparkToro, it's a shift off of the website, right? Into communities and, and whatnot. A lot of it is where and also having to serve two masters, right? So, so one of those is your audience, the people that you hope become customers or, or reach your customers. But the other, the other master there is the big tech platforms call it Twitter or LinkedIn or Reddit or YouTube or Facebook, Instagram, Google themselves too. They are all becoming more insular. They're all going to the AOL walled garden 1995 model because that's how they can extract the most revenue and the most data about their users. And as we've seen that progression happen, a lot of what, you know, what we are used to doing, which is essentially creating content on our website broadcasting it through these channels and then driving people back to our sites just doesn't work as well as creating the content natively for the platform in the formats that the platform prefers to amplify. It's sort of like we all hate it, but we can't do anything about it. When Google was like the only game in town, go back to, let's say 2008 or nine, right? Facebook is like barely out there. Twitter's barely out there. LinkedIn is a little bit Maybe Reddit and Dig have a little bit of traction in very techie circles, but Google is essentially the internet, Mm -hmm. like almost entirely. 
all the digital marketing that one should be doing, could be doing was, was Google, right? And so being in the SEO space was awesome. It was this rising tide that lifted Moz's ship and, and a number of other companies too. Fast forward to today, and I don't think you see that rising tide lifting. Oh, you know what you do see? AI, right? The whole, the idea, the trend of AI, reality aside, right? The trend of AI is rise is rising tides, you know, in the Bay Area and, and, and everywhere else uh, in technology. Tons of people are jumping on bandwagons, trying to find a problem that this potential solution fits, which is a weird way of building products and companies. And I'm sure that distortion will last for a few years, and then it'll either go the way of like the NFT bubble, or it'll go the way of the mobile phone, you know, explosion. Yeah, definitely at a crossroads here. Um, and it's going to be exciting to see where this goes. I am curious to pick your brain around how are you thinking about the teams, the go-to-market teams and how you're building them out in Spark Toro. It seems like you're being a little bit more thoughtful with the way that uh, you grow out Spark Toro as it was from Moz, which I think was probably a little bit more pressure from like investors and stuff like that. I'm curious how you're kind of mulling through that. So Spark Toro raised money in a very different way from Moz, right? Moz had classic venture investors. To their credit, I don't think the pressure came from them specifically, right? Like it wasn't Brad and Michelle that were like, hey, how are you going to grow more? It was it was me um, and the the world that I existed in around venture that was sort of like, gosh, we're only doubling year over year. We're not growing nearly as fast as Facebook or Uber or WeWork or you know, those, those types of companies that everybody pointed to in the era that Moz was growing. Um, and I think that that, that pressure, that, um, mindset warped a lot of things that I chose to do, including team stuff. Right. So we, gosh, after we raised that 2012 round, I think we hired close to 200 people in, you know, 36 months or so. So just an extremely rapid growth, massive cultural change and shift. Um, a lot of people who had been with the company for a long time when it was 20, 30, 40 people left the company, new people came in. I found that that style of growth, that style of team and management, being the CEO of a, you know, a larger or mid-sized company was not interesting to me. Um, let's see, it was interesting to me uh, but it also was very draining. It's not the way I like to operate. I like having close relationships with a very small number of people. I think that Moz, you know, reinforced that les lesson for me very strongly. And so Spark Toro is a three-person company. Me, Amanda, Casey. That's it. We have a, a very nice like revenue number per employee. We have um, plenty of growth and opportunity, and we don't work that hard. I I don't know if hard is the right word. We don't work many hours. Like we aim to keep our required working hours at 30 or below per week. Wow, so gotcha. a little bit like French working hours. I think the French are 33 or something. Yes, there's weeks where we work 40. Even I've even done a few 50 hour weeks, but it's extremely rare and hopefully almost never required, like absolutely demanded. And this lets us build very rich and fulfilled lives in other ways. And even more so, Adam, I think it makes us better at decision-making. I think that when we're not stressed, when we have time to 
let our brains sort of background process what's going on at work when we get lots of sleep and exercise and are emotionally fulfilled and sort of happy in our lives, we make good decisions about what the business should do instead of panic decisions about how do we maximize growth next month and beat our last quarter's thing because we have to prove to our next round of investors before we run out of money that we can get more money that, oof, I, I'm not interested. That's so refreshing to hear. It's not every day you, you find the founder and CEO of a, of a tech company that takes that perspective. This might be a little bit of a redundant question. I just want to make sure that I'm providing the right framing. And if there's anything else that you want to squeeze out of what we're talking about uh, before we uh, dive into websites, uh, the general reality of, of B2B tech landscape right now, smaller and, and in some cases still shrinking markets, generally very competitive. Um, some would uh, describe as hyper competitive in some situations. The blind buyer journey, thanks to dark social and dark funnel, um, in many cases, bigger buyer groups. Right, we want to make sure that we're not uh, making the uh, the wrong purchase decisions. Longer sales cycles, et cetera, et cetera. It's just a lot harder to make money predictably these days. In addition to what we've already discussed, are there any other issues that you see with the way that that B two B tech uh, companies are going to market given these realities? I would say that the biggest frustration I have when I talk to B two B tech companies and leaders about their sales and marketing is that there's still a tremendous amount of old school thinking um, in terms of, I, I'm going to throw out a number, it could be wrong, but I, I suspect it's in the right range, which is, I think, 90%, nine zero, not 99, 90% of B2B uh, companies that are doing sales primarily through digital marketing and then have a sales funnel still think about how that works the same way we were thinking about it in 2010, even though almost all of those changes you just described, right? Uh, dark social, untrackability of um, the buyer journey, the longer buyer journey, the bigger buyer groups, right? et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. Even though all the th those things have changed, the sales and marketing practice has not changed or evolved very much because most of the people who learned the practice of digital marketing and the sales funnel and all of that have risen in their careers to sort of the CMOs and chief sales officers and even CEOs. And they're now the ones who are telling their teams how it's supposed to be and how they did it back in the day. Mm. And it's just comfortable. And it, it does still work. It does still kind of work, not as well as it used to. A bunch of these companies are, are failing because of their sales and marketing practices, but don't realize it. But it can still work if your product's good enough and your sales team's sort of good enough. And for a lot of people, they're just using the, I'm going to pay the big tech platforms to financially bully my way out of this um, or bull rush my way out of this. Meaning instead of investing in like organic stuff, you know, content marketing, social media marketing, SEO, sources of influence, all that kind of stuff. You know what? If LinkedIn charges me, $3,000 instead of $300, just going to pay. <laughs> the frustrating part is convincing someone in a short conversation that all these things have changed is easy to do. Getting them to change their practices inside their business and sort of hire different people, let go of folks who aren't right fits for this, uh, restructure their sales team, restructure their marketing team, restructure how they measure things, tell their CEO and board, hey, you just got to believe me that if we do this in nine months, we'll see the impact of it. It's a bridge too far for almost all these folks. And 
for the few people who are willing to adopt it, that 10%, it's awesome that not everyone's doing it. It's awesome that tons of people are stuck in this past way of doing it because it means it's such a competitive advantage to do it this way. And it's so much less competitive. You do not see people making, you know, I've got this like whiteboard behind me, right? I do uh, these five minute whiteboards every week. And because, you know, it used to be at Moz, I would do like the 15 minute, you know, whiteboard Friday series, blah, blah, blah. Now I do much shorter ones. I do little promotional videos that are native content that sit on these platforms. There's no competition, right? Like I'm always shocked. I can put one of these up on LinkedIn and get 50,000 impressions for $0 spend. That's incredible. How are there not tons of people doing it? And yet when I look through my LinkedIn feed, I'm like, hmm, maybe it's harder than I think. But I don't think it's harder than I think. I think people aren't willing to invest. I'm with you. And I think part of that is we lean a little bit too heavily into competitor research and not enough into customer research and understanding the outcomes that they're looking for. And I want to thank you for a recent video that you, that you posted um, uh, was promoting a book by Purna Virgi. Yeah. Um, and when Rand tells me to get something, I get it. Uh, this such, book is such a great book. Wait, wait, wait. <laughs> huh? huh? I, I love I it. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, because, you know, I, it's I, like, it's so good. It's one of those things where I'm planning to give it to like all my buddies. <laughs> Be like, oh my God, you have to, you have to read this. Oh, I know. I'm on chapter three where, where we start diving into needs analysis, but just like the intro of this book, um, the way that she frames everything, it just kind of puts it into like a, like, this makes sense to me. I've been thinking about this for so long. Why, like, why haven't we, we been, been doing this? The three main uh, points that I, that I pulled from it is, like I said, this kind of a general lack of customer centricity and empathy in our marketing and a way too much over-dependence on competitor analysis. And then that's all, you know, that's always going to affect like your value prop and your messaging and your copy, which is like, if we're talking websites, we're talking CRO, SEO, all this good stuff. Um, but then it's also a general lack of understanding around like behavioral science and learning design. And I'm thinking to myself, like when I'm reading this, I'm like, you're totally right. Like we're marketers, this is psychology. Why haven't we been doing this more often? Maybe it's a combination of we're lazy and we're set in our ways, perhaps. Yeah, I Just mean, curious what you think there. I, for me, the, that form- You're, you're obviously the 10% that's doing it right, so. <laughs> well, right-ish. I mean, right. I, I will say this, right? Like our, our cost of customer acquisition uh, to LTV ratio is insane, right? Like it's, it's ludicrous. It's probably in the top 0.05% um, of all SaaS businesses. Our growth rate, however, is not in the top 0.05%. So some people might, you know, might point to those things as being disconnected. I think that's fair. What I would say about Perna's book, you know, and about the, uh, why haven't we, evolved with these things is in fairness, it's just hard to keep up. Like there's a ton of new knowledge coming out all the time. Industries change. Practices are often 10, 15, 20 years behind. That's just the way it is. All those years, right, Adam? I don't know how long you've been in SEO, but like all those years in, let's say 2005 to 2020, when SEO was just like climbing like a rocket and, and taking off, there were tons of CMOs and VPs of marketing who in 2015 would tell you SEO, isn't that, that's black hat, sketchy, spam. No, I don't think we should touch that. No, no way I'm hiring for that. that. That was a real thing that I fought against for the first 15 years of my career. 
So let's talk about the state of B2B tech marketing websites. I have a little bit of a, a frame here as well. I think ideally speaking, the, the marketing website should be able to stretch across the entire buyer and customer journey, not just acquisition, activation, Absolutely. retention, expansion. Absolutely. Obviously, business stage and resources are a huge issue here. You can't address everything, but I still feel like we could be doing better with our websites in general, whether pre or post sales. So I'm curious, what do you see as the biggest problem specifically with marketing website experiences? Assuming we're mostly talking about software and data and delivery and those kinds of things, the mm -hmm. website is actually the product. And weirdly, even though product-led marketing has become a thing and people talk about it all the time, there's almost no marketing thought that goes into the product itself. I think that's madness. Adam, I don't know if I, I mentioned or talked about it. I run another company, a video game studio, mm -hmm. indie game studio, and we're making our first game. It hasn't been announced yet, but... One of the things that I did in, in audience research and customer research around video game world was looking at a lot of games that seemed to be quite fun, but failed, like fell flat, didn't succeed with their audience. And why is that? Um, same thing's true. You know, when I did SparkToro for B2B tech, I wanted to like, hey, this product seems pretty good. Why did it never take off? Right. Or why did it only reach a, a small group of people? And I think um, in both of those cases, I, the product leader or the product designer, did not put marketing in terms of why will people come back to this? Why will they talk about it to other people? Why will they share the things that they learn through it? Why will they um, have experiences that are resonant with the kinds of emotions that people talk about later? Right? Why will I go leave a review for this? Why will I go put this in my slide deck? Why will I go share this on the stage that I'm on? Talk about this on a podcast that invites me, right? It, what's that hook that not just hooks a player into follow the game or add it to my wish list or buy it, but now I want to share my experience with other people. I need to go to the subreddit and post about this. That's just missing from product design. I think that product design does not teach marketing intentionally. Like it is left out of curriculum product designers, when they're confronted about this, they're like, that's not part of why we build products. We build them to be easy to use. We build them to be useful to people. We build them to be consistently valuable. We don't build them so that people will amplify them through sources of influence that reach other customers like them. That's not part of our goal. Well, there you go. <laughs> Are you seeing your customers using the insights provided by SparkToro to enhance the experiences directly on their website? I'm assuming it's mostly from like blog topical standpoints, like what to write about and stuff like that. But uh, uh, curious if we can dive in there a little bit. Sadly, the answer is no, mostly no. And the reason I think that is, is because, again, I'm going to say 90% of content creators rely on for what they decide to write about, publish about, create about, and that is search keywords. I would love a world in which people think, oh, this topic is really interesting on social media. People are talking about it. They're sharing this hashtag. There's a big conversation about this. I should create content on that topic. But most marketers are stuck in the 10, 15 years ago world of Google is everything. That's all I care about. Do people search for this keyword? If so, I will write about it. If they don't search for it, I will never write about it. And that is pervasive and pr pretty frustrating. I will say this, sometimes you fight the good fight and you're like, I'm 100% behind this and we need to get people to change. And sometimes you go, you know what? Maybe we should change and give our customers what they're asking for. And in this case, that's what we're gonna do. So the, the V2 of SparkToro is coming this fall. 
and it will include search keywords, essentially people who, whatever, are interior designers in Los Angeles search for these words and phrases more often than the average web user. It's a different way of doing keyword research than, you know, sort of you could do in, in classic SEO tools. It is audience research based rather than keyword research centric. But I'm hopeful that people will be like, oh, good. Now I have the keywords with search volume data. Great. Now I can convince my boss, team, client, whatever, to go create content on this front. What, what's getting you excited about the future of website experiences? And this can be theoretical. This can be AI based. This can be SEO based because we seem to be in this golden age of like B2B marketing. And like a lot of people are starting to realize what they can do and what should be done. So I'm just curious how you're thinking about that. Most of the things in AI world don't excite me that much. Um, and I think that's because I like small and creative and artistic, but I am pretty excited about AI making some parts of website experience creation a lot easier. Hmm. Like I do hope that in 10 years, people look back at, oh my God, like if you were a blogger in 2020, you know, you had to like call up your web developer and get them to do this and this. And if you didn't, you know, write your code just right in your WordPress CSS editor, it would it would all break and blah, blah, blah. And I'm, I'd be pretty excited for a world in which, you know, Geraldine, right, my wife, who's who runs the Everywhere's blog, can just go to a little the AI tab in WordPress and say, uh, you know, I want the header actually a little bigger, and um, can you do like a few shades more towards purple? And then it's done. Done. I would yeah. love to see that world. I want those things to be more accessible to people. I think that creation of experiences by the people who own the sites without having to pay an agency or a consultant or contractor or whatever, thousands of dollars. That'd be great. Like, that'd be awesome. Bring on that world. I'm excited for that. Um, the, the promise of, I'm think, thinking back to like Macromedia Dreamweaver in 1997 was sort of that, right? Like anybody can edit this. You don't have to write code to do it. Well, even <laughs> WordPress in 2023, you kind of have to write code. It's pretty frustrating. But Maybe, maybe in 2030, you won't have to. That excites me. Pivoting a little bit here, I'd, I'd, I'd be a little bit regretful if I didn't ask you a, an in-depth SEO question. So AI and SEO, there's a rise in this idea of programmatic SEO. It's not even an idea. Depending on who you talk to, uh, it's either a little scary as far as the direction they're going, or it, it could be pretty favorable. Let's say it's you're in a, a really saturated market. Uh, creating this almost automated engine using programmatic SEO as like feelers, if you will, to understand what the high intent keywords are, and then feeding that into this open AI machine to automatically update the content on the website. So we're pretty much like hands-free. This seems a little bit scary. I've seen some of this, as you call it, programmatic SEO. It's existed for a long time, right? There've been like find and replace type of systems that that folks built or or SEO testing tools, right? I think that those kinds of practices, they're neither good nor bad. They're mm -hmm. tools, they can be used effectively. I, I have no doubt that some people will find good uses for generative AI to uh, help scale their content needs or or whatever it is, right? They'll be like, hey, you know, whatever, GPT for sheets. Here's 95,000 pages of uh, uh, content on my website. 
I need you to go through and remove all instances of references to this person and um, or idea and then re replace it with instead this other thing. And maybe that's not even SEO. Maybe it's like a brand play. And great, you know, that'll save um, some miserable intern a lot of hours. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I think that those kinds of things can be great. And then there's generative AI things that I think are terrible. Like, hey, uh, chat GPT, go add four paragraphs of, you know, your generated content that you think would rank well in Google for each of these 95,000 keywords to the bottom of these 95,000 product pages. Just shoot me, right? You know, it's a bad idea, right? You know, Google can obviously detect that stuff. Even if they can't perfectly detect AI generated content, they can definitely detect content that users do not engage with. Rand, this has been great. Thank you so much. I do have uh, a couple of rapid fire questions here um, before we close out. I think I know what you're going to say here, but what do you wish more B2B marketers would do more of? More B2B marketers should do more organic investments. Try taking 10% of the budget that you're throwing at big tech, putting it somewhere else. What do you wish they would do less of? I don't think gating content is working as well as you think it is. I don't think that requiring attribution for every channel you invest in is a good way to play in a world where all the channels are trying to hide attribution from you. All the non-paid channels are trying to hide attribution from you. Is there any website that comes to mind when I say great B2B website experience other than SparkToro? Do you know uh, Joanna Weeby? She has an agency site that I think is just genius. The URL is boxcar.agency. And I think it is literally the best agency website I have seen. We'll link this in the show notes. Who are your sources of inspiration and education that you would like our listeners to know about? Well, I mean, we already talked about Perna. I'd be insane not to call out my colleague, Amanda Natividad, because she has just... She's oh a rock my God. star. When she, when she turns on the jets, like nobody... Nobody can get messages in B2B marketing world to spread further, faster, better than Amanda can. She has this incredible boundless energy, even in her 30 hours a week. She's such a fun and phenomenal writer too. A joy, joy to follow and a joy to work with. I also uh, love have been and have been impressed with, um, if, if folks don't already follow Melanie Diesel, who put out a new book, I believe it was last year. I think it was Content Fuel Framework um, was her first one in 2020. And then last year she put out a Prove It, um, mm. uh, exactly how modern marketers earn trust. Both of those books were great. Content Fuel Framework, a lot of folks I know have, have relied on for years, but, but Prove It's great too. Uh, I would check out both of those. Rand, this has been great. Thank you so much. Uh, this has been... For me, like I said, a momentous occasion. I've been following you for years. Thank you so much. Hopefully this is the last conversation. Adam, it'd be my pleasure to chat again. I, I hope we get to do that.